Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Okay, welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. That was like a Bredo podcast. Yeah. From the Podfathers. <laughs> My name is Gotta Daniel. Pay respects Foch. to them. My name is uh, Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker, investor, uh, analyst. I don't know. Pretty much anything to do with real estate, I try and do it. Real estate generalist, I guess at this point, a bit of a Swiss Army knife. And I'm joined here by Swiss Army knife in training and becoming pretty damn good. <laughs> Obviously, didn't read the 48 rules of power, which has never outshined the master. Nick Hill. <laughs> People will eventually one day become master. Yes, I guess my Swiss army knife needs a little bit of sharpening, but Dan, you actually are Swiss, so that's kind of unfair. I'm, I've got a bit of northern Italian in me, so we're, we're close borders there, but maybe my knife's a little dull, but that's okay because real estate is all about finding the right people and we found each other. So I'm happy to be here doing this podcast with you every Tuesday and Friday. And thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in today. We are looking at 12 lessons from a successful man who grew a family office net worth into the billions. We also look at what a family office is, some of the major family offices in Canada, and how they all invest in real estate. So why don't we just dive right into this episode, Dan, and start us off by telling me, I'll give you the, because I, I don't want the dictionary here, I'm going to give you the Dan Finition. Why don't you tell me what a family office is? So, yeah, I will. Um, interestingly, actually, I represent, uh, <laughs> represent a couple of family offices right now on a lot of family offices are actually jumping into the development space and joint venturing with developers. And, and so that's kind of been an interesting bit of advisory work that we've been doing lately at Land Bank. Um, a family office is a private wealth management advisory firm. Um, it's basically the family money of an ultra, ultra high net worth individual, um, or HNWI. Family offices are different from traditional wealth man management shops in that they offer a total solution to managing the financial and investment needs of an affluent individual or family. So almost like a full investment team, like a REIT would have an investment team. Um, or, you know, somebody would have an, uh, their own wealth advisor at a bank or whatever. You get one of those just for you. Yeah. I, I'd like to say I want to one day be an HNWI, but it almost sounds like a disease or something. So like HN, H1N1 or something. But that is a high net worth individual. And of course, you know, in real estate and investing, we got to have an acronym for everything. So that's what that means. Now, for example, in addition to financial planning and investment management, many family offices offer budgeting, insurance, charitable giving, wealth transfer planning, tax services, and more. So if you have a net worth of at least $100 million, you will be a good candidate for establishing your own family office. I know many of you listeners are out there being like, hey, that sounds like me. And if that does sound like you, please reach out to us immediately. <laughs> uh, if you have a net worth of at least $250 million, you'd be an even better candidate. Wow. Amazing. Multifamily offices have a lower threshold for families with a net worth of at least $30 million. So there's, don't get this confused with multifamily investing. There's multifamily and single family um 
family office services as well. And we'll get to that. Yeah. I mean, basically it's, uh, you know, they basically share the team uh, between exactly. a handful of capital from the family. So in the coming years, an estimated 400 billion is expected to be passed down from one generation to the next wow. in Canada. This is what you hear about when you hear that largest general generational wealth transfer in history. $400 billion is expected to be passed down from one generation to the next in Canada. Considered one of the largest wealth transfers in history, it's never been more important for families to find ways to effectively build and maintain their wealth and the services of a family office help a lot in doing this. A family office is the ecosystem that people build around themselves to manage their wealth, including business, financial, and personal matters. The concept of a family office isn't new. It traces back to Europe in the late 1800s and was popularized in the 19th century America when John D. Rockefeller had advisors looking after his vast, vast wealth and philanthropic efforts. Over the years... Rockefeller. Little, yeah, little known guy, John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> over the years, a small number of family offices served the needs of wealthy families in the U.S. and some global markets. It's actually interesting, before I let you jump in here, like, cause it, it's almost like they started, they, they were realizing that wealth can't transfer exceptionally well generation to generation. Like, you look at a lot of these historically incredibly well off families and, you know, by generation three or whatever, um, it ends up being, you know, like, there's a bunch of, you know what I there's mean. I don't bunch, have to say anything. Of, yeah, don't, yeah. We don't have to go into detail. I think yeah, everyone knows yeah, what we're say, saying. Yeah, yeah, you say third gen money, and people know what you're talking about, right? Um, now, in recent years, there has been a surge in the number of family offices that have been established around the world, and I think this probably has to do with the amazing economy that we enjoyed for a long time, obviously prior to the last two years, but then. People are realizing that, again, what Dan was saying, there needs to be a vehicle to transfer that money through the generations and not just relying upon each generation. Um, also, this transfer of wealth. So while this growth does coincide with the general rise in worldwide wealth, there are, I say that five times fast, there are also other reasons family offices have become increasingly sought after. To name a few, the market has more diverse needs of multi-generational and geographically dispersed families. So you've got money in Europe, you've got money in Asia, but you also have money in North America, for instance. New generations of entrepreneurs and executives, increased complexity stemming from regulations and the globalization and growing interest in philanthropy and, of course, legacy planning. Family offices come in different shapes and sizes and depending on the individual or family's unique needs and their complexity of the affairs that they have within their business interests. There are two main types of family offices in Canada. Single family offices or SFOs serve one individual in their family while multi-family offices, MFOs, serve a few families benefiting from economies of scale of one centralized investment team, let's call it. So what services are typically offered within that, that team? So number one would be integrated financial planning, wealth strategy, portfolio management, consolidated reporting and technology, estate and wealth transfer, tax planning, preparation and compliance, risk management, fiduciary and trustee services, lifestyle management, family consulting, governance, meetings and education, strategic philanthropy and administration. Man, I want some lifestyle management. That sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. What um, do they choose your vacations for you? What's the, yeah. <laughs> what's the richest family office in the world? Now, this 
probably won't come as any surprise to anybody. I'm a, I'm a nerd and used to read the Forbes billionaires list every year. And uh, this one family just kept on topping it. And uh, surprise, surprise, it is the Walton Enterprises. So that's the family that owns Walmart. And I believe there's like three or four siblings involved that all are, you know, top on the on the Forbes billionaires list every year. They're located in Arkansas. Uh, Walton Enterprises, the single family office. So again, they just that that family office just manages that one family's money uh, established by the late Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, and it manages a cool two hundred and twenty four billion in assets petty cash yeah exactly but here are the three richest family offices in canada dan start us off yeah number one is tom vest t-h-o-m-v-e-s-t in toronto the investment vehicle of peter j thompson is called tom vest the toronto-based family office has further offices in san francisco for venture capital investments and dallas for real estate investments Thompson, a Canadian rally race car driver and venture capitalist with, cool. an es- yeah, with an estimated net worth. It's like get to full billionaire status when you just become like a, like a pro race car driver for, for shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah, just got your own team, funding yeah. your own team. Yeah, it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, estimated net worth of over $6 billion and his family. The f- company was es- established in 96 and split between three verticals, ventures, asset management, and properties. It's an extraordinary active venture capital investor. The Thompsons are shareholders of Woodbridge, a family investment firm that controls the media publishing empire Thompson Reuters, which was founded by their grandfather, Roy Thompson. As in Roy Thompson Hall? Good old Roy, yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar, Roy Thompson Hall is a concert hall in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It's... uh also was converted into the Vought Tower for the TV show The Boys on uh, on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Have you seen it? It looks sick. Like, you know that like exoskeletal. Yeah, they took yeah. they took the like round thing and CGI'd it into a full tower for Roy Thompson Hall. It looks sick. Oh no way! Yeah, you have to check it out. Check it out. Um, located downtown in the city's entertainment dr- district, it is home of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, which is an awesome orchestra, by the way. Yeah, it's got these, as Dan mentioned, these beautiful sloping glass walls. It's surrounded by skyscrapers, but it was built to have these amazing acoustics right in the heart of like the central business district downtown. I've been lucky enough to see a few performances there. I actually think I saw, um, I'm going to sound like a nerd here, but both James Bond and Lord of the Rings by the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. So a good time there. Both really great performances. Love it. Um, it acquired its official name in 1982 as thanks to the family of Roy Thompson, who donated $4.5 million to complete the fundraising efforts for the new hall. That, that helps, hey? Certainly. Number two, we've got Claridge out of Montreal. Now, Claridge is the investment vehicle. That's the name of the family office, but it's actually a Canadian billionaire, and I'm probably going to butcher this. Stefan Bronfen. Stephen. Uh, Stephen. Stefan, maybe. Uh, Claridge invests in private equity, real estate, as well as other funds. In 2016, the Canadian Family Office launched a real estate investment program to focus on Quebec development projects. With an estimated net worth of $2.5 billion as of 2021, Bronfen was ranked by Forbes as the 27th wealthiest Canadian and 1249th in the world. 
The company's preferred business sectors are real estate. Well done. Food, sports, and entertainment. The company has invested in tours by the Rolling Stones, Madonna, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Damn, that is pretty cool. Real estate and rock and roll, baby. Uh, another cool thing. Steven tried to buy, in 2010, he tried to buy the Montreal Canadiens. Didn't succeed. I guess he didn't get them, and that's probably not a bad thing. He should try to buy the lease. That actually, that would have been a horrible thing as well. Never I feel mind. like the um, <laughs> the Senators is the big talking one right now with uh, with Ryan Reynolds basically becoming an owner. I think eventually, right? Like Van City Reynolds, we love to see it. Yeah, I don't. It is weird that it's Ottawa. They should have got uh, Gosling to get in there because he's from Cornwall, which is super close <laughs> to Ottawa. Um, we got both the cool Ryans from Canada. A co- couple great. cool Ryans. And Nickelback. Um, <laughs> the uh, number three on the list here is, uh, is Worklund from Calgary. David Worklund belongs to the wealthiest Canadians with an estimated net worth of $1.43 billion. He launched oil servicing company Concord Well Servicing and Waste Management Firm Canadian Crude Separators, which was ultimately combined in Tervita Corporation. In 2021, Tervita was acquired by Secure Energy Services. The Workland family office is active in various areas. They invest in active equities as well as disruptive technologies and merchant banking. For philanthropic endeavors, the firm also operates the Workland Foundation. Not to, no mention of real estate on that one. So I think maybe we got to give them a call and see if we can t- start, start deploying <laughs> some capital into, uh, into some real estate for them. Yeah. What are these guys thinking over there? Um, so that's a bit of a, a history on family offices, a bit of a breakdown as to who they are, what they're supposed to be doing. And the reason that we wanted to talk about that today is because the gentleman that we are going to be chatting about had a um, very serious effect on a family office. And these are the lessons that he has learned through decades of working with family offices. Also, as investors, we are always looking for capital. We're always looking for partnerships, whether you're trying to scale up and build your portfolio, whether you're, you know, dipping your toes into the investment or whether you're a full blown, uh, sorry, not investment, whether you're dipping your toes into the development section or whether you're a full blown developer. Um, there's always a reason to go out and find more capital and family offices, especially in Canada and, and globally, like investing in real estate. So if you can bring them a good deal, they might be someone you want to speak to. So let's move on to the gentleman that we are here to chat about, Ira Lubert. Mr. Lubert also serves as a chairman of GF Management, a company that specializes in the ownership and management of hospitality properties. He was previously involved in seven other ownership investment fund families. He was a co-founder of LEM Mezzanine Fund, a fund making mortgage loans. Um, you probably remember us talking about mezzanine debt. It's basically debt that often converts to equity and goes behind senior debt, sometimes even behind senior and junior debt. So senior being what first position, junior being second position, mezzanine often being third position, higher risk position, um, Quaker BioVenture and private equity fund engaged in making healthcare and life sciences investments and Patriot financial partners, a private equity fund focused on community banks. Busy guy. Um, especially, you know with, especially with the, what community banks are doing today. Oh man. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is we always talk about, you know, look at the, look at the two biggest wealth generators in the world, right? It's, it's real estate 
and and banking. So once you become the landlord, Do- Dogecoin, real estate, and Dogecoin, Dogecoin and GameStop, obviously, are are the other two. But uh, you know, once you get to, and we see this a lot with with real estate investors, right? Once you've got to a certain threshold of real estate investing, there always starts to, you start to wonder, okay, well, what am I doing with this money that I've made? Can I start to lend this out? So you go from landlord to the bank. And this is, you know, again, go check out our um, episodes on VTBs where you can actually become the bank and be the landlord at the same time. This is, the rest of this is from a someone that Dan and I both love. One of the best Twitter follows you can do. If you have Twitter, go follow Duke of Dirt. This is 12 lessons that he's put together from all of the research that he has done off of Ira Lubert. So Ira and I, I'm, is that is it Lubert or Lubert? You think? I don't know. I just followed your lead there, so because you're yeah. really uh, Euro with the pronunciation. Well, I've you know I've, I've butchered so many over the last eighty something episodes. What's one more? It's you know what? <laughs> if Ira listens to this podcast and is upset about it, then I would consider that an accomplishment anyway. <laughs> Ira, if you're listening, I apologize. Uh, He has built his little family office into a $50 billion behemoth. And I bet you've never heard of him. Here is what we've done by digging deep to find out what sets Lubert apart. Here are the 12 lessons from the wisest man you didn't know. As graciously summarized by the Duke of Dirt on Twitter, I must follow. Number one here, fail young and fail fast. In life, no matter how hard you try, sometimes you don't achieve your goals. Embrace the failures. You learn so much more from failure than you do from success. Man, I could not agree more. You know, there's there's all these things. And I'm sure if you follow any kind of like Patrick, Bet David, Alex Hormos, they, everyone is, you know, it's very, it wasn't cool to talk about failures for, for a long time. And now I think we're finally getting into a society where it is good to talk about failures. And it's something that I think, you know, people, especially people in our industry, uh, being the real estate, mortgage, construction, investing professions, um, don't really talk about enough. You know, Dan, I mean, you and I literally fail on a daily, weekly, monthly basis all the time, whether it's within our prefer- personal lives, professional lives, investing. Um, and, and it's something Speak that for yourself, you know, buddy. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes. Yes. I'm just kidding. No, yeah. I mean, it, but I agree. Yeah. It, it's about turning those failures into opportunities, learning from them. Right. So, sure. uh, you know, I, I, I've been trying to get more. I, I used to do this quite a lot. I used to put po- instead of posting my wins, my weekly wins, you know, close this many deals, bought this house. I used to post and I did this for a couple months. I used to post what went wrong that week. So, you know, I lost three clients this week. I lost a client to a bank, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it actually garnered really good responses from people because people were like thanking me, being like, wow, thanks for being honest and letting us know that, you know, you're not just out there crushing it all the time. It is so true, right? Because we're in that like high re- highlight real world where everybody's curating everything for Instagram or social media or whatever, and they don't want to show. I mean, I think like some of the, I think Gen Z like, social media has actually really been good for like people being more vulnerable and stuff. But, um, you know, when you talk about failing, like there's this principle in the tech world and I feel like the tech world really kind of like did recreate the idea of failure. And they had this concept of like fail forward, right? Like be comfortable making mistakes, see them as a good thing. Um, and, and do them quickly, right? And, and move on quickly and try not to make the same mistake twice. Like the reason you make it once is so that you don't have to make it twice. Love that. Exactly. Uh, number two, understand your strengths 
and weaknesses. Your basic personality will not change. Supplement your weaknesses with people who do them great. Ira decided to partner with people rather than creating one company. He knew he would never be a good people manager. So, I mean, Dan, why don't you speak to this one? Start us off here. Yeah, dude. I mean, I can I can relate to that so oh, so same. well. Like, and, and you know, yeah. I was even I was sitting in the car with Johnny the other day, and I was like, I just like I'm like I don't know if somebody was texting me about something, and I was like, I don't know if I can manage people, right? Like, I just I'm not I'm not like able to give enough of myself to it, right? And um there are people who can manage people exceptionally well. There are people who can manage systems exceptionally well. I mean, you look at our team at Land Bank, it's like just a super well-rounded team. There's no redundancy, very little overlap in the skill sets that everybody does. And honestly, like it's, it's hard to, you know, hard to think about when you're going into starting a business or starting ventures or whatever it is. You're saying, Oh, I'm only going to own 10% of this or 25% of this or whatever it is. But you, I would rather now have, you know, 25% of something than a hundred percent of nothing. Because the reality is in a lot of cases, I would not have made nearly the wealth or impact if I was trying to do it on my own. So I, w- I would agree, agree more. Yeah. I just want to say a few things here. You know, one self awareness, extremely important Two, get rid of your ego. It's, you know, I think a major strength in people is being to able to understand their weaknesses. And then the third thing I want to add is, is, you know, this, this is essentially just the same principle, who, not how, just, it, you know, figure out what you're good at and do it really well. And then don't kill yourself trying to, to, to work on and perfect the stuff that you're blatantly not inherently good at. Go find people that you like working with and bring them on. And you guys will succeed way more than if each person tried to do it individually and had to painfully go through and learn the stuff that they all suck at. Cause guys, we all suck at stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, the next one is adversity is essential to achieve success. Lou Bear spoke of the adversity faced during his wrestling career. He parlayed those lessons into his first year at IBM amongst the most educated grads in the country and finished top of the class because he had understood adversity. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I'm, I never had much of a wrestling career myself unless you count, you know, 12 years old with my brothers. Um, but I think it's a lot of, you know, it's funny. We, Dan, you and I both spent time in commercial real estate and, and we know lots of entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurs, commercial real estate guys and people that come, people that are just in competitive and, and high stress, uh, high stress careers or, or businesses do have, a, a sports background. And I think that sports background can be very easily parlayed into, uh, into the industries and, and the businesses that we're talking about because there is that level of competitiveness, right? So you go in there and, and that doesn't have to be a negative competition. That's, that's, that's internal competition. You want to be the best because you are your biggest competition. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it does come back to that like the adversity piece as well as the failure piece, it kind of, it, it, it connects to having an appreciation for the things that suck, right? You got to like be willing to defer gratification, be willing to suffer a little bit to get to, you know, that kind of the better phase later and longer. Yeah. You know, you, I just want to put, before I go to number four here, I, something you said, which actually real estate Trent posted on Instagram, which is, I think, and I can't remember exactly, but it was basically something like, Real estate comes down to delayed gratification. 
For sure. And it really does. Number four, the two keys in every investment. So obviously he's talking about a duplex with two doors, two separate keys here. Um, no, sorry, bad joke. <laughs> the first key is differentiation. Be different than the competition in some way. Recurring revenue is the differentiation in as a real estate operator. And the second key differentiator is barrier to entry, something that will stop someone else. So Dan, thoughts on this? I just, uh, the recurring revenue piece of diff- being a differentiator in the real estate. I, I mean, I think it's, it goes back to what Chip said about the subscription, you know, real estate just being a, the first ever subscription model, right? Yeah. I love if that. If you haven't checked out our, our interview with Chip, Chip Wilson, by the way, it's a must listen to episode. You know, the coolest thing is he's reposted us like multiple times. Yeah. Great and, guy. Uh, Such a beauty. Yeah. I love that guy. Um, um, number five, Dan. Yeah. So the best of the, or the four best of breed characteristics. And these really come down to being a person who's easy to work with and, and is going to get far. Cause you're not going to like screw people over, or, you know, be, you know, sinisterly working some ulterior motive or whatever that, that, you know, just wears on your productivity. Um, are you honest, ethical, committed, and capable? Those are the big four. And Lou Barrett ensures each of these characteristics is accounted for in a partner before he invests with them. And, this is a perspective of a smart person, right? So if you want to be investable, if you want to be the kind of person who eventually would like to attract capital and be use other people's money to do real estate deals, be at least all of those four things. A deal can be average <laughs> with a great person and still succeed. And you hear about this more and more in venture capital as well. People investing in founders, not businesses. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this. You know, I always, I always joke. I'm, I'm never the smartest guy in the room, but I, I can comfortably say that I, I do believe that I am all those things and I wake up every day trying to be all those things. And furthermore, Canada is a small place. And guess what? It gets even smaller when you get into any type of community. So whether you're in investment banking, whether you're in construction, whether you're in real estate investing, when you start rising to the upper echelon, the top of any one of those industries, you realize how very small it is and how absolutely important reputation is. You don't have a good reputation. You're not honest, ethical, committed, or capable. Guess what? You're not getting deals done. So, you know, those are the soft skills. You know, everyone's worried about AI taking over and blah, blah, blah. These are the soft skills that AI will never be able to compete with. These are the soft skills that you can get up and decide to have every day that people much, much smarter than you with way more money that look like they have more options might not have. And that's how you beat those people. That's your edge. Number six, create one and five year plans. Annually, Lou Bear creates one and five-year plans for what he wants to achieve on an income and life basis. He then broke down the metric in each goal to make sure he could monitor his progress. In 1975, his goal was to sell 40 computers. Those were back in the IBM days. So he basically put how many calls we have to make a week and how many sa- how many calls equals how many sales over how many weeks. Man, back in the IBM days, selling 40 computers. I love that. I mean, it, um, it probably were equivalent in value and size to a house. So he was bas- <laughs> basically a realtor at that time. Um, number seven here, treat partners as partners, not employees. As a partner, Lou Bear feels he is there to help them realize their objectives and goals. It is rare not to hear back from him in the same day. And I think a lot of this goes back to like 
what is a task that I'm delegating versus, you know, asking like I, cause like we have a, a big group, right? That we invest with, that we do deals with at Land Bank that, you know, we want to, um, it's like if I have something that's done that could be delegated to an employee, as an example, I'm not going to call a partner and ask them to do it. It's either I'm doing it, an employee is doing it. Or, you know, you don't ask them to do menial work or let people work within their pay grade. And, and we all need to be working together to ma- maximize. And this is based on the partnership that you create with anybody you're co-investing with or whatever, that you're all working to maximize the outcome of that, that organization that you're trying to build, right? Not doing menial things, working on the business, not in the business, right? Yeah, I love it. Number eight, life is a marathon, not a sprint. Now, this is even for all you non-runners out there. In real estate, it's all about staying power. If you can hold on to your asset through the downturn, you will, will be inevitably okay. Don't make short-term decisions that compromise the ability to play the long game. Dan, what are your thoughts on this? I, I think it comes back to that deferral of gratification, right? It's, um, and, and, uh, James Clear talks about this in, in, in atomic habits as well. Like, you know, there's, there's a good habit versus a bad habit, right? A good habit is you suffer today and you experience the benefit tomorrow. A bad habit is you feel good today and you experience the, the bad part tomorrow. Um, you know, so if you go to the gym today, it sucks. It's painful, but tomorrow you're in better shape than you were today. You know, if you choose to sit on your ass and eat, um, fast food on the couch today, then you're less healthy tomorrow. And you got to the pleasure of that, you know, that good junk food, the dopamine, whatever it was, but tomorrow you're worse off. Yeah. I love that. And, and you know, the staying power, it's so good too, right? We hear, I think I've used this term white knuckling through this, you know, a lot more than I ever have before, but this goes back to so many, Dan, we've talked about this so many times, the principles, right? If you, that staying power all comes from, you doing your due diligence before getting into that deal. You don't get into the deal and be like, okay, you know, oh, now we're here. How do we stay here? That's something that you've figured out long before you've bought this property because one, you have a thesis. Two, you've run the numbers. You've run them at a lot higher than what they are right now. And you've played out multiple scenarios. You've prepared for that marathon, right? It's a lot harder to prepare to run. I don't know how, you've, I don't know. This is bad. I don't know how long a marathon is. It's like 42, 42 kilometers. 42.2, yeah. 42.2 kilometers, a lot harder to run a marathon and prepare for, prepare the body for it than it is to, you know, sprint a hundred meters. Not saying that's not hard either, but anyone can probably break out in a sprint and, and give it a little bit. Whereas not many people can sustain, you know, even more than five or 10 kilometers. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Good point. Uh, next up is always look for an alignment of interests. How can you ever ask someone to put money into something they themselves don't have skin in the game, right? So if you're not invested in your own deals, why would they put money into your deals? If you're not willing to risk your own capital, a lot of people like, this is the thing that has always confused me about the OPM stuff, the other people's money stuff, when they're like, oh, do deals with zero of your own dollars in the deal. It's and, like- And own everything. Yeah. I've personally never met an investor who's- um super interested in doing deals with somebody who isn't willing to risk their own capital. Maybe some people are better at finding uh, dumber investors than I work with, but I don't like it just, it doesn't compute to me. So look like the easiest way to see whether or not your interests align um, is, are you willing to put money in the same places? Do you have, you know, um, similar values, similar interests? 
relative to your net worth, it should be material. You should be taking on risk in the transaction if, if you're asking somebody else to participate in it. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, number 10, you make money on the buy. Ideally, you want to be a val- at value at which an advantage to your competition. This enables you to be more nimble when the market softens. A high basis hinders every aspect of operation. So very simply put, you make money when you buy the actual piece of property. Then you can add value throughout that lifespan. But, you know, we say this a lot. Good deals are made, not found. And if you buy something incorrectly, you are doing way more work to dig yourself out of that bad deal. And that work could have been making that deal better initially. For sure. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't have much more to add on that one. Um, number 11, this is one of my favorite. And uh, I actually... <laughs> When Johnny um, bought his first deal ever, and this is one of our business partners who's one of the most exceptional investors that I know. When he bought his first deal, I gave him a, a cigar box. Do you know this? Have you seen it? No, you seen this it? is good. I've seen this. I, I've smoked yeah. a cigar out of that cigar box. I didn't know you gave it to him. What's the story here? Yeah. It, well, I just, it, we, he was in love with this this deal. And I, I was always taught never fall in love with a piece of dirt. It actually comes from a buddy of mine that I went to university with told me that. And I just met with him recently. He's, he works at a big development shop in, uh, in Toronto, but, um, he, uh, he told me this line. And so I got it. I was worried that Johnny was just going to keep falling in love with deals and buy. And buy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I gave him this, um, this box that said never fall in love with a piece of dirt on it. And uh, it's a cigar box. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. But anyway, the, the rule here is don't fall in love with your assets. Buy when people are selling. Sell when people are buying. Being a contrarian leads to outsized returns. I mean, and look, like you, everybody knows that I'm bearish. I talk about it all the time. And but we've been buying when my outlook on the economy isn't good. My, you know, nobody else is buying. Volumes down forty percent. We practice what we preach here. We're talking about it, and we're doing it at the same time. And I saw prices come off twenty percent from January to, to January twenty twenty two to twenty twenty three. And I said, I, I can. I like the market again. I like prices. I, you know what I mean? I think I think even if there's downside, I'm still comfortable buying. And so I was okay jumping in and being that contrary. And, and we've gotten some great deals out of it. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, and, that, and that contrarian attitude, you know, that can be, in some ways it has a negative connotation because people just, you know, use it to gaslight other people these days. But being contrary to what people are doing in specific ways, like buying when people are selling, selling when people are buying, that's where the sweet spot is. Another thing is, um, Johnny sold that property. So it's, it's just really funny. <laughs> He's, I, I, the market was going nuts and I was like, and it was, it was, it was, the, was the beginning of COVID. This was a sweet property. It was like an acre, 600 feet of frontage on a river. It was developable into like six semis. We we're going to do like a really, really nice site plan. And anyway, COVID happened. So riverfront, one acre, whatever. I was like, you could get three X what you paid for this property right now, put it on the market. And we did it. We sold it for three X what he paid in like in three years or something. It was and, not, and his heart was not broken. He's still I mean, with us like, today. Yeah, well, he took that money and deployed it and he's doing exceptionally well now. Right. So, yeah. I mean, cigar box saved your life, right? It's a $600,000 <laughs> cigar box right there. <laughs> The 12th and final, and this is funny because uh, I believe I'm going to read this and for anyone that has seen the movie, you'll know immediately, but Mr. Ira Lubert shares this one with Peter Parker. Actually, I guess it's Peter Parker's grandfather 
with success comes responsibility or the way you probably remember it with great. No, what is it? With great power comes great responsibility with great success comes great responsibility. So have a responsibility to help others. If you can help others succeed, do it and pay it forward. And I'll tell you right now, this is a great one to finish this list on. Because Dan, that's what you and I are doing. I've had so much help from other people, mentors, even you yourself have helped me so much in my career. That's really what this podcast is about. Outside from all the other benefits, like, you know, helping other people get deals done and building the national network. We're here because we want to help people become successful. We are trying to pay it forward. And now, you know, we just had our biggest week ever last week with over 14,200 downloads, which we're super stoked about. Thank you so much to everyone listening. But guess what? We're now more responsible than ever to make sure that we're putting out the best, the most relevant information for everybody because now there's more people listening. Yeah, couldn't uh, couldn't agree with you more there. Okay, that concludes the 12 lessons, but we do have two more quick segments here. Dan, you've got a hilarious deal today for us then we've got a quick review hilarious? so why don't we it's only funny because of your story around it oh so I, yeah sorry i guess I like it's not funny whatsoever um, i like the deal too but, but, but i've, been, I've been convinced to like it less um by yourself and the investor who sent it so this was sent to us by uh, a listener to the podcast awesome guy um i'm not going to name drop him because i don't know if he's comfortable with me mentioning his name on the show but all, he said it always he's got a great portfolio already and he says i really have always wanted to own an apartment building so he's been sending me apartment buildings in Winnipeg, and uh, there was one really, really good one that we that we missed. So, but this one's it's interesting. I mean, I really liked it. Like when I saw it, I was like, these numbers are too good to be true for a deal of Same. that size. And then, so I was like, what's what's the catch, right? And Nick, what what was the catch? Tell me about the deal and tell so, me the catch. Okay, so we will start things off. That it's located at four hundred Toronto Street, Winnipeg, Manitoba. The MLS number is 2023001288. Now, my lovely girlfriend, some of her best friends, we all live in Toronto now, some of her best friends interprovincially migrated from Winnipeg over to Toronto. So obviously through my due diligence process, I always like to go and see, you know, boots on the ground. If I, I don't know Winnipeg well, I know deals well and I can analyze this deal, but where is it? Right. Like that, that usually has a pretty, that's uh, something you, it's really hard to tell that from afar, right? Like you can't, you can't. And tell I mean, that you, you can, ground. you can walk it on Google Earth, which, which we do, but. You know, that still doesn't really give you the nitty gritty boots on the ground feel. You're not getting the smells and the noises and all that kind of stuff. So I reached out to, I won't mention her name either, but I reached out to a very good friend of, uh, of mine and was like, Hey, a client is looking to buy this in Winnipeg. What do you think? And her reaction, uh, was the hilarious part of this deal of the day. Cause she was like, Oh my God, no. Um, that is one of the worst Didn't areas of Winnipeg. <laughs> she asked if I was joking, said 2 million. I can't believe it. And then she's like, okay, well, I guess it's for basically the whole block. So maybe, but, uh, apparently the area has some issues with homeless people, drugs, uh, so it's a rough and, part of and, town. and more. A little bit yeah. of a rough part of town. So that's, that's the catch. So, cause like you're looking at it. So, okay. So let's quickly go through this. And first, first things first. You know, people who make exceptionally good money in real estate are people who do high impact investment in underserved areas. And no, 
in a lot of cases, the best returns are made on the deals that other people don't want to do. So there's a couple of things on this one, but you know, for anybody who's seen this show, Shameless, the TV show Shameless, they always talk about gentrifiers, right? Like, and they're like angry that like these new people are rich people are moving <laughs> into the area. They're like NIMBYs, like NIMBYs, NIMBY stands for not in my backyard, but they don't want like people of like a, uh, and basically to, to, um, to give you context on what a gentrifier is, because I just Googled it, like, and it says, what makes someone a gentrifier? It's a middle-class person who moves into a disinvested neighborhood when the when a critical mass of other middle-class people do the same, exerting economic, political, and social pressures upon the existing community, according to the book Gentrifier. So for the purposes of this calculation, um, if your neighborhood's median income is lower than the median income of your city, and if you're income is higher than the me- your city is median, you're a gentrifier. And this can work on um, na- a neighborhood level as well. So gentrification is basically, you know, an area improving in, uh, uh, you know, I guess, economically, uh, income, etc. So in a lot of cases, people who don't fit into the area. So the question becomes, as an investor, do you want to be or do you feel capable of being that or playing that role because it's not it sounds like based on you know the tv show shameless and this book and a bunch of other <laughs> factors and just the the perspective of that word using the word gentrification because in a lot of cases it carries a very uh, negative connotation is it sounds like almost like thankless work right um and so the question is do you want to be doing that because you you know but but with a with a building of this size we'll go through the the, the deal with a building of this size you, you know if you're basically doing like your friend mentioned, a whole block, a number of units, if you're turning them all over, improving the quality, you would basically be uplifting an entire neighborhood. Um, and so, I mean, the question becomes, is that something that you, that you would want to do? Um, so first year metrics, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, and it's high risk, I would say as well, but the reward Mm -hmm. is substantial. So, um, so first year metrics, uh, if you did it at, um, so this is with no improvement costs with a expected monthly rent of 21,000. So they, they provide the income in there. Um, so it would provide a a purchase price of 2 million. So asking price, um, cap rate is 10.71%. Uh, on that. Um, but I played around with it a little bit because I was like, I feel like you're going to have to get a discount on the price. They also mentioned that you could get, um, you know, 60 to 70% of the suites vacant. So I was like, okay, let's drop the price by 200K. So 10%. You're getting it at 90% of asking price. Um, but you got to put in 250,000, let's say, cash investment. Um, but because you're doing that and you're turning over a bunch of suites, maybe you paint the, paint the exterior of the building, make it look really nicer, you know, improve the quality, whatever it is. Um, maybe your expected monthly rent goes up to 30,000. Now all of a sudden you're at a 17% cap rate. Whoo. Come on. 29.88% cash on cash return. Right. Um, and wow. so, so it shows you how sharpening the, the price, sharpening the, your pencil a little bit on price and allocating that same amount. Even if I, even if I made that $200,000 difference that you're getting on price, just 200,000 in improvement costs. So you, rather than putting that cash towards the purchase, you put it towards improvements. Cash on cash goes up to 30, over 30% cap rate at 17% cap rate. If you're getting them, if, if the result of those improvements is that the, the monthly rent increases to $30,000. So, I mean, look, from my perspective, that's what, you know, the numbers of making a good deal looks like. I guess I'll just do a quick description on this property too. Um, 23 unit apartment block, eight two bedrooms, seven one bedrooms, eight bachelors. Income is 260,000. Costs are 
50k. So that's where I got the income from um, in the assumptions. Has steam heat, works excellent. Um, and then it says possession can be adjusted to closer to 50 to 70% full. And there's a lot next door that's included as part of the deal for land value of 200,000. So there's also future ad value potential. So again, tough deal, tough neighborhood, but potential to make it a great deal with some of those factors that we discussed. You know what? I bet, uh, I bet Ira Luber would do it. I don't know. I mean, I, tough to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the coolest thing about this is, is you're right. There's a ton of upside for, for the building itself, but you know, obviously this is a long-term play. You've got that whole building lot next door. You know, you go build something on that in a few years. I, I, I like the deal. I like the deal, even though it's, uh, even though it's a rough part of town. Look, you know, I'm in Liberty Village in Toronto right now. 10, 15 years ago, Liberty, well, more like 20 years ago, Liberty Village was a rough part of town. So rough parts of town are only rough until they're not. Uh, let's call it there. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. We'll see you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.